Welcome to season two of the Napapa Coffee House, brought to you by the generous support of our sponsors. I'm Priya Parandre, and I'm the executive director of Napapa. This season's Napapa Coffee House conversations focus on how AA and HPI leaders, especially women, have reached positions of prominence across various industries and their paths to power. This season is hosted by legal legend and trailblazer Deborah Wong Yang. It has been amazing to hear from AA and HPI women leaders who have made such an impact in fields where they are true trailblazers. Reshma Saujani is the founder of Girls Who Code and the nation's first Indian American woman candidate for US Congress. As the child of Indian refugees who fled persecution in Uganda, her family faced discrimination, harassment, hate incidents, and anti-Asian vandalism when they settled outside of Chicago in the 1970s. She emerged with a fighting spirit that guided her to law school and to running for public office. In addition to Girls Who Code, Reshma is also the author of Brave Not Perfect, where she elaborates on the social convention of raising our boys to be brave, but our girls to be perfect, and how this is holding us back. To create institutional and systemic change, to better the lives of women and girls, she founded the Marshall Plan for Moms, now known as Moms First, to advocate for policies that value women's labor in and out of the home. So sit back and sip as Reshma dives deep into her journey. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Reshma Sajani is a leading activist and is the founder of Girls Who Code and she went on to also found the Marshall Plan for Moms. I love the names, Reshma. Um, she has spent nearly a decade building movements that actually fight for women and for girls, focused on economic empowerment, working to close the gender gap in the tech sector, and most recently advocating for policies to support moms impacted by the pandemic. She's also the author of the international bestseller, Brave Not Perfect, We'll come back to that. I love the title and her influential TED talk, Teach Girls Bravery, Not Perfection, has more than 5 million views globally. Reshma began her career as an attorney and as a democratic organizer. In 2010, she surged onto the political scene as the first Indian American woman to run for Congress. And during the race, Reshma visited local schools and saw the gender gap in computing classes firsthand, which led her to start Girls Who Code. She also served as New York City's deputy public advocate, where she created innovative partnerships to support dreamers and promote, and promote campaign finance reform, among other things. In her nine-year tenure as the CEO of Girls Who Code, which is actually where I met Reshma, our law firm in Reshma was, Reshma was just starting out and we got involved at that point in time. And Reshma it was actually really exciting for me to see you know, what it was, how it started to change because we were involved for years and really sort of like where you took it. I wanna, you know, we'll talk to you about that so our, you know, our listeners can understand that. But honestly, what I was, going to say to you is that it just fills my heart with great joy to see how much that has changed and turning into an organization of prestigious nonprofits in the country. Today, Girls Who Code has taught over 300,000 girls through direct in-person computer science education programming 
and reached 500 million people worldwide through its New York Times best-selling book series and award-winning campaigns. And finally, in 2019, not surprisingly, Girls Who Code was awarded the most innovative nonprofit by Fast Company. So, you know, Reshma, it's great to see you again. Um, and you thank too. you. No, thank you. And thank you for joining us today. I can't tell you how thrilled we are. This season's Napava's Coffee House podcast is actually focused on exploring how Asian Americans have ascended to powers of position, uh, positions of power mm. in all different kinds of industries. And what we're really trying to do is focus on how Asian American women have done so and what ground we still have to cover. I'm hoping that some of the things that you share, some of the things you went through, some of the ways that you thought about some of these things and launched them can be inspirational to a younger generation. And so that they have the confidence and ideas to know that they can go forth and do you know wonderful and amazing things like you and so many other Asian American women. You've been such a beacon of inspiration for us and what it means to actually be a strong Asian woman. And you've been in two sectors that are important to all of us because we don't have great presence in them. That's in the congressional runs uh, and representation, and that's in the world of tech. So I'm looking forward to exploring these themes with you further today. So let's get started. Um, so I think one of the things is, let's just talk a little bit about your background because that's something that people don't really know and your parents' journey here to the United States. I understand that they were immigrant refugees that actually had fleed Uganda. Yeah. Um, Idi Amin came to power in that country and began his, you know, his reign of terror. I, I can't even begin to imagine what kind of experience that was for your family, for you, for your parents. Can you talk to us a little bit about that experience? Because it is so unique. And some of the things uh, about how that sort of shaped you as a young child, because we know you and love you today, but... <laughs> You are the, you know, manifestation of who you were as a, a younger person. Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, my parents came to this country in the 70s, late 70s, when they were in their 20s. And they were part of a big family, but they were the only ones that got refugee status to come to America. They were both trained engineers. And so they came, they like picked out, they decided what state they were coming to by getting out a map of the United States in a dart and just throwing it and landed in Chicago, Illinois. So they that's where they came. And my father talks about how when they showed up, they were wearing shorts and t-shirts in the middle of January in Chicago because they had never seen snow before. They lived in Uganda. And, you know, they built a life for themselves. And even though they were trained engineers, my, my mother sold cosmetics. You know, my father worked as a machinist in a plant. And to get a job, he had to change his name from Mukun to Mike. And, you know, they, were, you know, basically raised us in a kind of a working class family in Schaumburg, Illinois, where there just wasn't a lot of brown people. And it was the 1980s and it was, you know, Vincent Chin, you remember that, right? So there wasn't, you know, there was so much discrimination and racism towards Asians, towards people of color. And I face that every single day. And my sister and I recently, we talked about, we faced like hate crimes, violence, attacks, you know what I mean? On a daily basis. Yeah. Uh, our house would get spray painted, go back to your own country. You know, my mom would get harassed for wearing a sari at the local Kmart. You know, I was bullied in school. And, you know, our parents kind of way of dealing with this was really about assimilation. I remember this one time when our house was spray painted. My father was outside, you know, with Clorox, literally like scraping the side of the house. And I remember he was almost like humming a Bollywood tune. 
And I remember watching him, but I remember thinking, Deborah, I am never going to be you. I'm never going to, I'm never going to not fight, you know, because for them, this was the tax that they had to pay to be in this country. And as a first generation, I, I was, this is my country. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not paying that tax yeah. with my silence. Yeah. And so I think that growing up with that experience was deeply profound for me. Yeah. You know, I actually <laughs> was a young lawyer in Chicago in the 80s, the late 80s. And I remember what a difference it made when Mayor Washington took office and how it just changed. We actually ended up starting the Asian bar organization there for young lawyers because he gave us the seed money and he gave us that opportunities to help galvanize and which actually became part of the starting group of NAPABA. So, you know, having those seeds out there, you know, and get helping others create opportunity, you know, for others to flourish and for communities to flourish. And so I think that, you know, that experience for you, because I grew up in California and moved to the Midwest. I was stunned by the kinds of things I heard, the kinds of things people said to me, and it wasn't anything close to what you went through, but you realize that it it sort of makes you feel like, wait a minute, why are you talking to me like this? Because I'm American, (laughs) you know, I belong here. This is my country. I don't want to be in any other country. But it's this whole dialogue that, you know, you and I can have that conversation one day over a glass of wine. It's a much longer one about just sort of like keeping your culture alive and keeping who you are alive, but also trying to assimilate into, you know, um, a a broader sort of life that is reflective of many cultures. So, you know, what I hear from you is that some of that gave you that fighter spirit, right? And that... um, you know, it really influenced your identity. You know, there's a story, and I'm not sure that I even know it, but I've heard of it, about how you got into Yale Law School. And what others have said to me is that it was really a story of perseverance and resilience and, and fighting. And can you just share what that was? Because I'm I'm dying to know. Well, you know, again, where I grew up, nobody went to Yale or Harvard, right? And I, when I was a little girl, I had snuck down into my parents' basement and I was watching the movie, The Accused. I don't know if you remember, but it was about this powerful lawyer that was like standing up for this woman who had been violated. And at that moment, I just said, I was, I want to be a lawyer. And I had my father take me to the library so I could look up what was the best law school in the country. And there it was, Yale Law School. And I remember printing out that US News and World Report and just putting it on my refrigerator. And I was like 12, 13, I was young, right? And that was where I was gonna go. Mm-hmm. And graduated top of my class, applied once, didn't get in. Applied twice, didn't get in. And I got into other great schools, Northwestern, Georgia, but I was set on Yale. And I decided instead of going to law school, I was gonna go to the Kennedy School of Government while I tried again for the third time to try to get into Yale Law School. And while I was at the Kennedy School of Government, I met Leon Higginbotham Jr., who was the first kind of federal black jurist. And he became my mentor. And he went to Yale Law School. And Leon had said to me when I told him about like my obsession, he's like, oh, I got you. Like they got a picture of, you know, they got a whole, you know, when you walk into Yale Law School, the first picture you see is mine, right? Like I'm gonna write you a recommendation letter. And before he really got to finish my recommendation letter, he died. 
And when I was at his funeral, I met the assistant to Dean Cromman, who was then the dean of law school. Long story short, she got me an appointment to meet the dean. I made my case to Dean Cromman, and he said, all right, I'll make, I'll make you a deal. You know what I mean? If you get into any law school in the country, I'll let you transfer to Yale. And so I grinded and I grinded and I got into the top of my class at Georgetown Law and then I transferred to Yale. And it was just a story. I mean, it was a story of like two things. I think one, the perseverance of like not giving up on your dream. But I think the second thing was, it's also about how, and this goes back to being an immigrant, how we get so attached to the credential that we think that the credential is a necessity to be where we need to be. Yeah. And it was really, you know, it was really, I gave the commencement speech at Yale Law School a few months ago this season. And it was just, you know, like just being there with my kids and my husband and like, you know, and, and how, how, how much that law school signified for me for so long in my life and then finally getting there, which is so powerful. The fact that you had that fighter spirit in you, it's not just like having dreams. It's also like not giving up and also staying on it. Like, you know, you went to another great law school, you could have graduated from there, but it's really the, the inside tenacity, right. In sticking with something because you wanted to get that done. You know, one thing that really struck me was the fact that, you know, as the first, you know, Indian woman to run for Congress. I mean, in the Asian world, we're always trying to get more people to run for public office here in the United States because, you know, we're so lacking in representation in that sense, right? But how did that come about? Like, you know, you weren't, you you hadn't been out of law school for that long. And, you know, it's not that easy to do something like that. And, you know, for those who haven't been raised in a political family, it seems, you know, relatively insurmountable to try to imagine yourself to be a, you know, one of our congressional representatives. Could you tell us a little bit about how that came about and how, how you focused on that? I don't think I just didn't know any better. Like, don't you think when we're <laughs> younger, we just have a lot more chutzpah? I always wanted to serve. You know, I was of the generation that if you wanted to make a difference in the world, if you wanted to make the world a better place, you ran for office. And I know that's very much changed now. And so that was always the plan. And then I kind of woke up at age 33 and I was living in New York and I love New York. I was New York. I was, you know, I, I always say I got here as fast as I could. So there was no like I'm moving back to Chicago to run. And I wasn't really young anymore. Like I couldn't keep postponing my dream. And I was actively involved in politics. And, you know, people would always say, oh, we got to get more people to run. We got to get more young women to run. I was like, oh, great, I'm going to run. And when I decided to run for this congressional seat, it was supposed to be an open seat. And then the congresswoman, Carolyn Maloney, decided not to run for Senate, that she was going to stay. And I just naively thought that by then I had gotten attached to the idea of running for office and being in Congress. And so I was like, I'm going to meet, I can meet every voter and shake every hand. And I was first... South Asian American woman to ever run for office. I had no idea what I was doing. I joke that like I have this ragtag group of friends who like, well, like, oh, we know how to build the website. And I raised like $50,000 from Indian aunties that were just so happy an Indian girl was running for office. But it was the best experience of my life because like I had never gone on TV before. And of course my first interview was like mm-hmm. Chris Matthews, I bombed it. You know, I had to walk into senior centers and talk about my myself i'd never you know i'd never raised money before i'd never hired a team before i'd never built a campaign and i learned all this on my own 
And it was just such an empowering experience. I'll never forget it. And, and it, I'll never be afraid to do anything else after that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Can you, can you reflect on a second? Because, you know, you were doing it, you were, you know, looking at things, you were trying to imagine what it was, would be like to, you know, represent a constituency, right? About, you know, why we need to have that. I'm presuming that you believe that, <laughs> but why we need to have that kind of representation here in the United States, because, you know, I know that a lot of, you know, folks, in the AA, in the broader AAPI, you know, community, you know, their parents recently immigrated, they weren't involved in politics in their home country, because for lots of different reasons, sometimes it's, you know, didn't feel safe, it just, you know, wasn't even a possibility. But the setup in other foreign countries and here in the United States is vastly different. And so I wanted to see if, you know, there were any observations that you had as you were actually going through that about why, you know, not just you, but why we need to have that kind of representation. I mean, absolutely. My parents were expelled by a dictator and the South, you know, my two generations of my family was born in Uganda, but they yeah. never participated in the political process and they lost everything. I mean, you, I thought about, you know, when I really got to the height of my political organizing here, you know, here was, you know, after 9-11, when we were basically shipping, you know, Pakistani Americans on 747s back to Karachi because they were terrified about their, they didn't know their rights. Yeah. You know, and so it, it this can happen. I mean, Japanese internment, this can happen at any moment. Yeah. And it has, we've seen this in this in the, the Asian American community of how it you know how it does happen. Yeah. And so we our participation, our voice is critical. I say this as a mother. Yeah. You know, we live in a nation that doesn't have paid leave, that doesn't have affordable childcare, you yeah. know, what I mean? that doesn't actually that pays moms fifty-eight cents on every dollar. Yeah. And it's because we don't have enough moms in Congress. Right? right. And so when you when you look at like when policies don't exist or protections don't exist, it's often because the representation, you know, is not there. I mean, we're having this conversation the day that the Supreme Court, you know what I mean, has gotten yeah. of affirmative action. Yeah. And it's it's very interesting, right? Seventy five percent of I was just reading the seventy five percent of Americans believe that affirmative action should not exist in colleges. But the vast majority of Americans believe that if, that if they worked in a workforce that was not diverse, they would not want to work there. Oh, interesting. So, um, yeah, very interesting, right? How do you reconcile the two? Because I think intuitively we know that you'll make better decisions. You'll create better products. American capitalism will thrive and certain, you know, I mean, when you have diversity. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's, a, you know, I haven't even had a chance to look at it. So I've been reading the headlines, but I think that, you know, we're at a place of inflection here in the United States and that we have to think about different ways to have that diversity, to bring that diversity forward because it has, it, as I call it, it's the, you know, it's where you have the riches of what the United States really is, right? Because as I jokingly say, you know, you can, you're as rich as all the people around you. And so when all the people around you come from all different kinds of walks, that reflects back into us and the work that we do and the, and the lives that we lead. So, you know, hopefully this will yeah. also open up different ways of thought and different avenues in which, you know, we can get to that place. But one of the things that I know that is that when you were running for Congress, 
and you and I read this when I was looking at your background, but you actually started to see some gender gap in the computing courses. And I, I didn't realize that that was sort of the genesis of Girls Who Code, but can you talk to us about that and, yeah. and then yeah. how you went from there to actually launching, you know, and putting it together because yeah. that's when I met you. So. Yeah. Well, I, so I ran, when I was running for office, I would go into classrooms and computer science classrooms. And at that time, you know, it was t- 2010. So tech was starting to boom. And when I went into those classrooms, there were no girls. And I remember like, I knew Silicon Valley was a boys club, but I didn't know that club started in high school. And because it wasn't my field, I was like, what's going on here? Like you got this booming tech industry where you make $120,000 as an incoming software programmer. Where are the women? Where are the people of color? And so when I lost, I I decided I'm not going, you know, I wasn't going to go back to the private sector. I wanted to do public service. And I was like, okay, what are the problems that I, what, what are the things I saw on the campaign trail that I can impact? And I couldn't get those classrooms out of my head. And so Girls Who Code started, you know, was inspired by my congressional run. Mm-hmm. And for about two years, I started just after work, you know, I was working as a deputy public advocate at lunch in the morning, I would just talk to computer scientists, economists, teachers, people, trying to understand, well, what, and I learned about women in tech and that there were less than 20% of those women in tech and that when in the 1980s we were almost at parity and then we pushed women out and what were the interventions and how do you change it and so girls who code really started as just an idea of like okay if you start if you wanted to build the pipeline and you wanted to get more girls in tech how could you do that and it started really as an experiment and my motivation starting girls who code was not was really about the american dream mm. It was really about saying, hey, like, actually, there are no girls in tech, not white, not black, not trans, not gay, not poor, not rich. And so maybe just maybe this could be a place where you could start people on an equal footing. Mm. And so, you know, in my first classrooms, I had a girl who came from a homeless shelter in Harlem sitting next to a girl who went to the best private school in New York City, and neither one of them knew how to code. And so they were both starting at the same place. And of course, and they were both equally recruited, right, by a Microsoft or a Google later to go work in tech. And I thought that that's how you achieve the American dream. And that was really my inspiration. And then, you know, during that first class, I actually invited my friend. Um, so I, I've been doing a lot of work on undocumented students. I started the first scholarship for undocumented students in the public advocates office. So I invited my friends from the New York Immigration Coalition to come and talk. And the task for the for the students were to say, if you were to design any app, any tool to help undocumented students, what would it be? And I remember sitting in that room and just watching the ideas and watching the ways and I, it just hit me. I was like, even though I may have lost my race to wash, to get to Congress, maybe I can inspire a generation of girls to be change makers, you know, to fight, to get a cure to cancer, COVID and climate. And that then became the mission of girls who code and like, you know, I guess my obsession with scale. Yeah. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you about, because that's the part that I think mystifies a lot of people because, you know, what was the, like, let's talk about it. When girls first, uh, girls who code first started, you know, it was small, you know, describe what that was and then explain how you scaled up because. Yeah, right. Cause we're actually 600,000 girls now. Yay. Yay. And millions that we've reached through our programs. Well, you know, it started as a summer camp, which we hosted at your office in yep. LA. And 
which was we would put 20 girls in a room and we would embed them in a classroom inside a technology company or a law firm. Um, and 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 then what then two years and I was like, OK, wait, I could have hundreds of these and run the largest summer camp in America, but we're not going to get to because the, the, the goal that we had after our first year was to close the gender gap in technology. And mm-hmm. so we hired McKinsey to come and basically back end how many girls would you have to go through your programs in order to get to gender parity in the technology workforce? And we said, how long will that take us to do? All right, 10 years. But that means that every year we got to teach 20 girls, 100 girls, 1,000 girls, 10,000 girls, 20,000 girls, 100,000 girls, right? And so we knew it's, I knew pretty early on, maybe in year two, that it couldn't just happen through our summer programs. And so I had this idea of starting after school programs, because at that time, less than one out of 10 schools was offering computer science. Right. And people were desperately looking for things to do. Yeah. And I thought that the way that I could ignite that is through my students. So what I would do at every summer camp at the end of every graduation, I'd say, all right, you had an amazing summer. They're all crying. They've made their best friends. They've learned something. They're inspired. And I'd say, all right, I got one ask for you. I want you to go back to your school and I want you to launch a Girls Who Code Club. And that's how we launched our Girls Who Code Clubs program, which, you know, right before the pandemic, we had 10,000 of those across the country and then in Canada, the UK, in India. And so that was really the massive accelerator. And then we went into colleges and we started Girls Who Code Loops because we found that, you know, the pipeline is also leaky for women once they declare computer science as a major. And so that if we could create a sisterhood in college, you would reduce the, the you know, the, the dropout rate. Yeah. yeah, 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 Well, I mean, that's just fantastic. I mean, and it continues to be kind of a world and an environment where having some of the, the female, you know, contribution is so critical, you know, as we, you know, and just so you know, I want you to know the very first snap story I ever posted was actually at a Girls Code event because I was... I, I can't tell you the joy that I had that day being with these young, beautiful, inspiring women of all different, you know, colors and shapes and everything. Yeah. And we took this big, I was taking a, a selfie because I was so excited to be there and they all saw what I was doing and they asked and I told them and I was going to post it on my snap stories, but I hadn't done it yet. And so they all crowded around me. So it was like the, the frame was filled with these young girls. And literally it's to this day, it's one of the, you know, those images that bring you such yeah. great joy and such happiness yeah. from that day. And, and that was that. So, you know, thank you. No, thank you for that. Let's switch gears for a sec, because this is another thing that I thought, you know, you're very good. I, I think about coining kind of things that are going on and, and building solutions for us in a few words. Okay, because this bravery, not perfection, my goodness, I, you know, talk to me about how that came about and really what that focus is, because it's so, I think it's going to so resonate with so many of our, you know. Well, I mean, I was inspired by my students, you know, so so many of them who had first started learning how to code, you know, they would call a teacher over, right? And during the first week, nobody has learned, nobody knew how to code. And they would call a teacher over and they'd say, "I, I don't know what code to write. And the teacher would look at their screen and she'd see a blank text editor. But if she pressed undo a few times, she saw that her student actually wrote code, but then deleted it. So instead of showing her the progress that she made, she'd rather show her nothing at all. It's this idea of perfection or bust. 
I tell the story on the TED stage and I'm inundated with people say who like, I do this too. And, and what I mean by that is like, whether you were a teacher, a lawyer, you know I mean, an artist, dancer, you were erasing the code of your life. And what, what I mean is like, you were giving up before you even tried. Mm -hmm. So, you know, especially as APA, you know, as immigrants, we have always been taught to be perfect you know, to draw on the lines, to make ourselves small, to not take risks and to gravitate towards things that we're good at. And so, and that is the opposite of bravery. And in so many ways, I think that bravery is the antidote of perfectionism because, and perfectionism has serious consequences. I mean, if you look at it in terms of education, you yeah. know, women declare economics as a major. If they get a B in a single course, they drop out. Whereas, you know, boys are like, I got a D, I'm running for president, right? Completely different consequences. I mean, you look at it at Instagram, right? Yeah. It's like the levels of anxiety and depression are, are so high for, for girls because of perfectionism. You see it in leadership, right? Where women won't apply for a job unless they meet 100% of the qualifications. And I think the antidote to perfectionism is bravery. And what I mean by bravery is not even like running for office or saving a baby from a burning building, but it's like, you know, the bravery to when someone bumps into you to say, to not say, I'm sorry, yeah. right? To stand up for yourself, to raise your hand when you feel like you have something to say, yeah. right? That's the kind of bravery that I'm talking you know, about. I think decades ago, I read this book called Nine to Five, and it was really about, you know, women and women in the workforce and stuff like that. And one of the things that I remember from that is that, you know, women say, I'm sorry all the time, all right? The time. All the time. And you know what? <laughs> After I read that, I noticed, so do I. And so to this day, when I write emails, I always like proof it just to make sure that I've taken out the I'm sorry. And invariably it's in there. It's just literally, it's the way that I talk. And so I have to like, it, I'm still trying to teach myself how to sort of like unlearn that. And not because I'm not sorry, but because nobody else is apologizing. I can just get, get into it and get, you know, get right into it. And, you know, I've heard other people describe it as, you know, sometimes you have to be, you have to learn how to be comfortable with the uncomfortable, right? And so that, you know, when you find yourself in a place where it's just not so perfect and not so, you know, you've been there before and you've mastered it, it it's because you haven't, and that's because you're growing. And so not to be afraid of that, but to yeah. actually like learn to live with a little bit of the, the discomfort, so to speak, right? Yep. Um, so, okay. How did you come into creating the Marshall Plan for Moms? First, describe what it is for folks yeah. and then tell us how that sort of came about. So Marshall Plan for Moms, which is now called Moms First Change, started during the pandemic when I saw how so many of my students were not going to major in computer science because their mothers were essential workers. And mm. instead of going to college, they had to take care of their siblings because daycare centers were shut down and schools were shut down. And so I really learned that, you know, for so long, we've just been focused on the wrong things mm -hmm. to get to gender equality. We've been focused on fixing women, getting a mentor, getting a sponsor, color coding your calendar, like rather than the structural things that are standing in the way, like instead of fixing ourselves, we've got to fix the system. Yeah. And the reality is, is 86% of women by the time they're 44 are a mom and it's becoming a mom that shifts our ability to achieve everything and anything because we live in a society that doesn't have paid leave. 90% of low-income women go back to work one day after having a baby. Mm. We live in a country that doesn't have affordable childcare, the only industrialization. 40% of parents are in debt. 
because of childcare. Most women in this country work to work, and at some point, it just doesn't make sense, right? Because the cost of childcare is so expensive. And when we are in the workforce, we're not compensated for our for our work equally. Moms make 58 cents for every dollar. Every child a father has, he makes a 6% premium. We make a 4% loss. And so that's why we never, it never has, you know, we can never catch up. I mean, something as basic as, you know, most firms are promoted by how long you've been there. Well, guess what? The minute you decide of a baby, you're out of the race. Yeah, yeah. And so we're always trying to catch up and we never can catch up. And so this is to me, my big aha, right? In, in life is we have to focus on structural change. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the big stuff, right? Not the small stuff. And and I'll say this even with coding, I can't teach as many girls as I need to close the gender gap if I don't get rid of bias in technology companies, yeah. right? Like yeah. if I don't create systems that are in companies that root out gender bias yeah. from hiring, it doesn't matter how many girls I teach. Yeah, yeah. Well, Reshma, we're coming towards the end here. And so, by the way, thank you for everything. Uh, and, and I mean that in a global sense, because <laughs> I love the big things that you're doing. And they're really important to us. And I think the other thing is that, you know, you have a particular knack for having a vision of kind of bigger structural things, right? That should change. And thank goodness you have the energy and (laughs) the desire and the ability to actually sort of put it in place. So thank you for that, you know, from the community. But, you know, for others who are, you know, at the beginnings of navigating their careers and, you know, just coming into thinking about motherhood or maybe, you know, being the early mothers and, you know, that sort of stuff and really trying to keep their professional careers together. Do you have any words of advice for them, you know, as to things for them to, to think about, to focus on, you know, so for their sort of. I would just chase your intellectual curiosity, find the problems that you think need fixing and just do one thing towards that. Yeah. Yeah. I Amazing. think that's great advice. Yeah. Nope. I'm going to take it myself. So thank you tons. Thank you so time. much. It's great thank to see you. And, you know, hopefully it won't be too long before I see you again. I appreciate that. I hope okay. so. Take great. care. You take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye, guys. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Napaba Coffee House. We appreciate your time and support. We extend a heartfelt thank you to our incredible sponsors, Cooley LLP, Gibson Dunn, and PepsiCo for making this episode possible. If you enjoyed today's episode, consider subscribing, leaving a review or comment, and sharing it with your friends. We love hearing from you, so feel free to connect with us on social media or through our website, www.napaba.org. Until next time, keep brewing curiosity.